I'm not working with prisoners, but that's what they come with again and again. I felt stupid or I was made to stand in front of the class or the teacher said, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you? And they people, these things stay with people 20, 30 years later. There's still, you know, there's enormous power that teachers have over young people. And I sometimes I wish that was what I would like to be able to go into schools and train teachers on the impact that they have, because I don't think they necessarily realise the long-term impact of a lot of what's happening in school. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, Six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're going to talk about school and formal education. There's a very strong correlation between experiencing problems with school and being criminalised. 90% of those sentenced to more than 12 months of custody as a young person were persistently absent, that is missed more than 10% of school. 16% of those sentenced to more than 12 months in custody had been excluded and a further 23% of those receiving shorter custodial sentences were also excluded. So our guest today is Dr Naomi Fisher. Naomi is a clinical psychologist and mother of two young people who've never been to conventional school. She's the author of Changing Our Minds, How Children Can Take Control of Their Own Learning, and an upcoming book on self-directed education and neurodiversity. And having being the parent of, of somebody who has problems attending um, primary school, I'm really delighted to get the chance to talk with you today, Naomi. Great. Thank you, Naomi. It's nice to be here. I'm with another Naomi. Yes. Yeah, it's not often that happens, <laughs> is it? It's go- it could be going to make the conversation slightly confusing. Yeah. <laughs> so, hi, Naomi. It's very nice to meet you and thank you for coming along today. Can you tell us something about your career pathway? How did you come to be specialised in supporting families that experience problems with our educational system? A really good question. I think lots of things came together for me. So um, I actually had a very checkered history at school myself. I went to 11 different schools, uh, all sorts of different kind of places. And uh, a couple of those schools I was very unhappy at and I refused to go to myself. Um, and then as an adult, I studied a lot of psychology. I did clinical psych. I did a doctorate in autism before I did my um, doc. I did a PhD in autism before I did my doctorate in clinical psychology. Um, and then I worked in the NHS for quite a long time, mostly with adults, mostly in the NHS, not entirely, but mostly. Um, and then alongside that, I had my own children. And when I had my own children, I started to rethink a lot of what I had been taught about education at school, but also um, thinking about how what I had been taught in psychology, in my developmental psychology, in my first degree, in my in my PhD, and how that fitted with what was going to be done to my children in the school system. And, and in particular, I, I was uncomfortable with the way that we take autonomy away very quickly from young people and that we very quickly take learning out of context and we say to them, this is what you're going to need to do and you need to do it now. And it felt to me like up to this point, I'd mostly been working in the NHS with adults. It felt to me like a lot of what I was seeing in the adults that I worked with often had its roots in perhaps what we were doing 
to our young people, that they would come to me with a sense of powerlessness. They would come to me with a sense that their choices didn't matter or a lack of trust in their choices. And then I was looking at what was happening in the school system. It was like, well, we're not actually developing those skills in the school system, not after the early years. Early years is really different. And I think, you know, early years, we get we trust children to make choices. We, we In fact, we facilitate them to make choices. We try to get them expressing their interests and we do things like let them go to the toilet when they want to go to the toilet and all that kind of thing and then as they go through school we take away that autonomy we control them more and more and more with I think adverse effects on their mental health so that was kind of where it came from and then when I so I decided not to send my children to school um my son is a summer born he was a very very active four-year-old or in fact he was three when we were looking around schools um and I could just see that what we were going to be asked to do with him wasn't going to be what he needed at that point in his development but also I felt uncomfortable the way that I felt I was going to be pulled into that so we had a meeting before that he had a place at our local primary school which is an excellent primary school on our street um we went along to the meeting before reception started he was just three at this point and they gave me a list of words and said we'd like him we'd like you to teach him these words over the summer holidays and the words were things like the if and but and I looked at this and I looked at my three-year-old and I was like we could we could <laughs> I can't see how we're going to I'm going to learn, teach him how these words are but also this is learning completely out of context there was no way that I could have better understood that school was kind of taking stuff out of context and this little boy who'd only ever learned things because he wanted to learn them because he was interested and he was learning so much and I could see him learning so much and suddenly I was going to be put in this role of saying well now you've got to learn these things which you can't see the point in and you don't think are interesting but I'm going to make you do it because that's what school says and then sorry to make this very long as we carried on and my children stayed out of school I think I believe I thought like lots of people do I thought We'll keep them out of school for the early years. We'll do lots of play, play-based stuff. And then by the time they're about seven or eight, maybe they'll be more ready to go into a formal education. I think that's a mindset lots of people have. By the time they were, my, so I've got my son and then my daughter who's three years younger. By the time my son was seven or eight, it was really clear to me that rather than becoming closer to what school required, he was diverging further from what school required. We believe was becoming more self-led, more independent, much less likely to want to sit at a desk and do what he was told. And so we, and as I saw him learning, all the time I was thinking, but this makes such a lot of sense from what I know as a psychologist. All of this makes so much sense. And why aren't we shouting about it more? Why aren't people saying more? Look, actually children can learn in really different ways. And what we're doing in school isn't necessarily the only way for them to learn and not necessarily the best way either. So that's a long and rambling story. <laughs> Sorry. It, it, it's fascinating. It, it really is. Um, but to begin with, I'm, I'm really struck by how different people's experiences can be. So you mentioned that you went to 11 different schools. And I think I went to two yeah. or three, if you count, yeah. you know, a year at nursery school. Yeah. Um, and uh, not, that, not that I particularly gained from that experience. Well, I did gain a lot mm -hmm. from it, but... But uh, how did you come to go to 11 schools? Were your family moving around a lot? Uh, yes. So my family, we actually moved to two different African countries for parts of my childhood. So I lived in Botswana for a while. And then I lived in the Congo, which was Zaire at the time for a while. And so because and each time that we moved back and forth from the UK, I would probably usually go to a different school. And then, of course, I also had the natural transitions between primary, secondary, all of that kind of thing. 
So it just that and also as well as that, I was unhappy at a couple of different schools. So I was also moved because I was unhappy. So I don't think I was at any one school for longer than two and a half years for my mm. entire school career, mm. which gave me an amazing insight into how different schools worked. And I think already at that point, I was becoming a bit of a skeptic about the things that schools said, because every school I went to had a different approach and they all said, this is the best way to do it. This is what you need to do. And then they would impose those rules. So just as a really obvious example, I went to an international school in the Congo where we had no uniform. We could wear whatever we liked. And everybody wore jeans, basically, or shorts because it was hot. And then I came back to the UK. I went to a comprehensive school and then a grammar school, both of them with a strict uniform. And the uniform was a thing. You know, it was complying with the uniform was a thing you had we at one school we had our skirts measured at the door because not only were our skirts not allowed to be too short they also weren't allowed to be too long this was the era of really long skirts and uh, people would be sent home because their skirts were too long or you had to wear your tie tucked in a certain way and your shirt had to be a certain way and it was like there are all these rules that they've done and actually I've just been at a school where none of this was necessary no effort put into it nobody was bothered about it and yet we've created these rules and now a whole culture has come up around it. So I think I had that kind of skepticism all the way along. I was like, hang on a minute, the last place didn't do this and we managed fine. So why do we have to do it here like this here? That's fascinating, isn't it? It's really bringing back memories for me because at uh, my school, apart from the tie and the trousers and stuff, uh, there was a thing about caps. So you always had to wear your cap yeah. if you're out in town. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and of course you were supposed to wear it in a particular way which is just pulled on the yep. top whereas most boys deliberately wore it as far back as possible just to be different <laughs> I mean the urge to be not shackled in the kind of way that you're describing is very powerful I think so yes and the more shackles you create the more people pushed against it that's yeah, what's interesting yeah, I think yeah, yeah. So and, and I'm really interested in what you're saying, and I already feel myself being won round by your arguments because I come to the conversation with a certain amount of resistance because um, I've always been slightly wary of um, homeschoolers because I've been mm -hmm. a great believer in community, you know, the kind of thing which Margaret yeah. Thatcher said didn't exist. I believed should yeah. exist and should be fostered, you see. So keeping children out of school to me represented something about withdrawing or inhibiting the growth of community. What what do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think community should not be forced for a start. I think it should be something that you can opt into. I think you should be, I think we shouldn't be obliging young people to be part of a particular community. Um, and I think that there's a problem when we say to young people, this is obligatory, you can't leave. That I think is the core of the problem with our education system, actually, that um, I think community is really important. And actually, one of the things that home educators will tell you is that they have formed a very strong community. And over the years that we've worked, that I've home educated we now have a community that reaches all over the country of other people who've made these kind of choices um but it's a community that you can that the children have a choice about and I've always thought there's a kind of utopian ideal isn't there of your local school where everybody goes and everybody's happy and it's a sort of egalitarian dream and we're all being offered the same thing and it's a um and it's good for for equality and everything but what we don't see 
is the children for whom that really doesn't work and who are really unhappy because they're often not even attending that school. So our lovely local school that we think everybody's happy at actually will almost certainly have a few children who find that environment really difficult and really stressful because there's no one setting or one community that works for everybody. There, there just isn't. If we if we say that young people have to be in a classroom all day, for example, for some young people, that is really difficult. And they find that distressing on a visceral level. Some people, children will, children will tell me, you know, it feels like I'm in a cage when I'm at school. And I, I think community is really important. And I'd love to see us developing communities where young people want to participate so that we had learning places where, where we could go and, and young people are saying, I can't wait to go because it's so there. I really enjoy being there. And I would like, I think the problem with the, the model that we've got at the moment, which is that this is compulsory, is that we put the onus on parents and children to do the attending and school provides what they're, what they're providing, but they don't have school to make themselves a place that children would choose to come to because that isn't that isn't part of what it is do you see what I mean it's like I would like to see if I think if children were allowed to leave we'd be able to say the schools would be saying okay how can we make ourselves a really child-friendly friendly place and then I think the children would choose to come because I think children are driven to learn they do want to do things they want to participate in their community but the the way it's done is too restrictive and too limiting for them at the moment it needs to be far wider and far more diverse and, and I think home education is part of that I think there are some young people who don't thrive particularly in their early years and they're in a kind of group setting where they have to do everything in the way that the school needs it I just think there are some young people like that and and therefore we need that diversity of options for them as well Thank you. And, and going on from that, do you think school or our education system really, does it reflect contemporary knowledge about how human beings learn? Well, that's a really hot topic, as you, I don't know, you may know, but it's one of the things that um, often there's a lot of, there's a lot of buzz about research-led education or evidence-based education. Um, Gavin Williamson, who was the education secretary a couple of years ago, said, you know, we now know what works best, children seated in, row, seated in rows, facing forwards, listening to the expert. And there's a lot of push to say that what the science shows us is that children need to learn in a very regimented way. They need to be told what they need to learn, then they need to practice learning it. And essentially, learning is about remembering stuff. I don't actually dispute all that science. I think the science is strong for that, about that's how we might remember stuff. I think education is something much wider than how do we get kids to remember lots of stuff. I think education has to be something about how young people develop, how humans develop, how people feel about themselves, how our young people come out of the system feeling about themselves. And I don't think our school system reflects any of that at all. Okay, thanks. So what are the kind of problems that you see young people and their families facing in, in, in managing school? Uh, well, I see a whole range of problems. Um, so people, when, I, when people ask me about this, they often assume I'm going to say bullying. And that's the thing that people typically say, oh, yes, there's a lot of bullying in schools. Is that what you see? And actually, some young people who I see have been bullied, overtly bullied. A lot of them haven't. A lot of them will be talking about the difficulties with school are things like 
I can't choose what I do. I have to stay in my seat all day. I have to do what I'm told all day. Um, I can't go home if I want to. I can't eat when I want to. I can't go to the toilet when I want to. All of those things some children find really, really difficult. And some children find being separated from their parents really difficult at the age we expect them to do that. I think that schooling, as we currently have it, kind of assumes a linear way of child development. It assumes that at three, children are ready to do this. At four, they're ready to do this. At eight, they're ready to do this. And they they kind of go through, they march through the system based on age. And I actually think that child development is far less um, standardized than that and I think at the moment what's happening is we're pathologizing that difference so if a child isn't ready to separate at three or four it becomes a problem if a child isn't ready to learn to read at six or seven it becomes a problem and I think that by doing that unfortunately what we're doing is we're kind of baking in those problems so the child who isn't ready to learn to read at six for example the interesting thing about home educated children is they often learn to read a lot later it's really normal for a home educated child to learn to read at eight, nine, ten. It wouldn't, it wouldn't raise an eyebrow in the home educated community if a child was learning to read at that age. And I think one of the reasons for that is that at home, children have a lot more influence about how they're taught, how they learn, um, because they have a lot more power. The school situation takes power away from our young people and our children. And, and you find that when a child, for example, if a, if a parent's trying to teach their child and the child's glazing over, the parent pretty quickly decides this isn't worth doing, we'll back off. Whereas in a class of 30, the teacher isn't going to say, oh, I've got three glazing over, so I'm going to stop. They're going to carry on. Of course they are. That's what they have to do. And so you find that it's a much more organic process, the learning between a child and an adult out of school. And I think it's so interesting that so many home educated children in often very literate homes, homes with lots of reading is going on, all that kind of thing. They don't learn to read until they're eight plus. Um, and then when they have learned to read, they they're off. So it doesn't cause them problems in the same way as the school system, as happens in the school system. So, you, you know, as you know, if a, if a child isn't learning to read at six or seven in the school system, it will cause them big problems. It will mean that they can't access the rest of the curriculum. It will mean that they see themselves as behind the rest of their class. That doesn't happen for home educated children. And so when they do learn to read, they don't have all those hang ups about it that the school children have. So, I mean, I've seen it in both my own children. I assumed my children would be early readers. I learned to read when I was three. I was a bit reading with my thing, you know, all the way through school. I loved reading. Neither of my children learned to read before the age of eight. And it was a bit like, oh, you know, with my school mind, I was like, this is very late. What's going on? And I just had to sort of hold on for the ride. And they're both now reading. And my son, who's the older one, he's reading The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. He's reading for pleasure, having not really been a fluent reader until he was about 10 or 11. Um, so I think that we need to open our minds up to really different ways of development and giving children chances to be able to come to these things at different stages in their development. I wonder sometimes as well if schooling kind of kills the pleasure because I know so many people yeah. who said who obviously could read that they, they went through school past the yeah. exams and everything but said I've never read a book for for pleasure because yeah because they just couldn't yeah. connect with that whereas obviously you know if children are learning because it's something they want to do then they're much more likely to be curious about it and I think the whole lockdown yeah. experience last year and seeing how children were expected to pick out single words and describe what kind of 
grammatical um, constituent they were, I think that yeah. your heart sinks. You can see how that just kills off the pleasure of reading that paragraph, which could have been quite rich as an experience. Yes, I mean, that's a bit like my example, isn't it, of the early years where I was given this list of words. It's like we've, we've turned reading into this technical skill, which is completely divorced from the point of reading, which is to be able to access information and to access the world of books and everything, and which is such an exciting thing to be able to do. Yeah, and and why? And I think you're right that when we when we take things away from that, we can really easily kill the pleasure. And I see that a lot actually in the young people that I see, particularly those who at primary school parents will say they went in loving stories. We used to read books all the time. Now they won't go near it. I cannot get them to open a book. You know, it's like I'm torturing them if I say let's read a story together. So I think we should be looking at that. You know, I think there's something serious going on here. And I one of the terms I often use is that um, we need to look at the side effects of school. We need to look at the effects that are going on, not necessarily for all children and young people, because, some, you know, it's not about everybody. But if you have a drug and it has a side effect, it doesn't matter if it's only one in 100 for whom it has that side effect for. You want to know about it. And if it's going to be a really serious side effect, you really, really want to know about it. And you want to integrate it into your knowledge of how you're prescribing this drug and whether this drug is safe to take. We're not doing that with education. We're not looking at, OK, so what's the effect on the children for whom this really doesn't seem to work? No one me as a psychologist you know that doctors have a yellow card system where they can fill in adverse effects and side effects of drugs no one says okay so you're working in a clinic near the, near these, these schools here what's going on here what side effects are you seeing of what we're doing to them in school zero it doesn't get fed back because those children become invisible like I work with a lot of children who are no longer at school so their parents have home educated or they've been off-rolled or there's all sorts of ways that they're no longer at school but they become quite invisible to the system because the only effort that's put in is if they haven't if they're if they're still registered it's let's get them into school we want them to be attending there's a lot of pressure families talk about horrendous pressure of you've got to get that child into school every day but very little into why is that child not attending what's going on for them the, the kind of mindset is they're not attending because their parents aren't can't be bothered that's what parents say to people say to me all the time oh isn't it just because their parents can't be bothered to get out of bed and I just like some of these parents are trying to get <laughs> trying to get their kids in school from you know from six in the morning every day and their children are just desperate and they're desperate as well it's really then it's a really sad place to be trying to get your child to school when you can't yeah that's that's a very powerful description there but but earlier on Naomi when you're talking about theories of learning um mm -hmm. and, and so on I, it, it yeah. came to my mind that that what you were describing really sounded a bit like A.S. Neil and Summerhill model <laughs> of learning does that resonate at all with you um yes I think some things about what A.S. Neil writes resonate definitely um I don't actually think so Summerhill has a, um, for those who don't know, Summerhill's approach is that they have lessons and you young people can go to them if they want to, but they don't have to go. 
So you can choose not to go if you don't want to. But uh, the lessons run in a kind of teacher-led way, I think. I'm sure they're, they're a bit more... Uh, I'm sure, I don't know exactly how they work. I've never seen a Summerhill lesson. Anyway, um, I don't think that's the only way to do things. I don't think there has to be either you come and do the lessons or it's fine for you to run outside and play and do what you want kind of thing. I think there can be a kind of way where adults are working alongside young people in a different way. So that adults are working alongside young people to help them learn the things they want to learn, which isn't the same as I'm going to teach you a lesson on it. Do you see what I mean? I do. So there's um, so there's this place where my kids are actually is the self-managed learning college in Hove or near Brighton. And there they talk about a structure so that he has a um, Ian Cunningham, who's the fun founder. He has a five question structure and I'm not going to be able to tell you what the five questions are, but they're about where are you now? Where do you want to get to? How are you going to get there? How what do you need to help you get there and what might stop you getting there? So it's about helping young people. He talks about it being an empty structure into which they can put their own content of what they want to learn. But I, I like that model. I like a way of let's think, you know, we want adults need to be involved. People often say when I talk about self-directed education, well, do you mean we just leave them to get on with it? It's like people have this idea that either we really control every aspect of children's lives or we do nothing at all. And then we just leave them to discover things by themselves. And that's not what you find if you talk to home educators, if you talk to people running self-directed learning communities, you find that adults are very involved. They're just involved in a different way. And in, in fact, they're involved in a way that most of us know if we remember back to when our own children were young because that's what we mostly do with our two and three-year-olds because it's very hard to lecture a two or three-year-old they just walk off in my experience but what you do do is you generally find ways to help them explore their interests and you find things you know if they love dinosaurs you get more books about dinosaurs you go to the library and find out about dinosaurs <laughs> if they love lego you go to places where you can explore lego you know that's the kind of thing that they're doing and then adults everybody would say adults are very involved with two and three-year-olds learning but they're not they're not delivering lessons to them yeah thanks very much that's, that's a great answer um so anyway, moving on, in, in, in the introduction, mm -hmm. uh, Naomi mentioned um, the number of people attending uh, in, in young people in custody. So do you think it's yeah. possible that the poor experience of school is exacerbating some of the difficulties young people might experience at home? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think... I think of school as an amazing opportunity, really. We've, if we think, you know, as a psychologist, if I see someone for one hour a week for like 10 weeks or 12 weeks, we think of that as a lot of input. School has young people for 30 hours a week for like 12 years. It's an enormous amount of time, an enormous potential to, to make positive change and to be a positive place where young people can 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 experience something different particularly if they are having difficulties at home I think that unfortunately at the moment there's a lot of focus on attendance being the thing that is the most important thing under you know lots of people say the research shows exactly what Naomi said at the beginning that being a poor attender has poor consequences and I think that obviously that's true. But what I think the, the false bit is then that if we force young people to attend, that we can then get rid of those consequences. I don't think we can. I think we need to look at the reasons why they're not attending. And we need to work with that, with what's going on for them. Um, and I think one of the difficulties is actually that there is this philosophy that either you attend school or 
it's up to your parents. There's nothing really. And it is up to parents, which means that if your parents aren't going to step in, then there's nothing. And I think that's a serious lack. I would like I, what I would like in my kind of blue sky thinking, I would like it if there were just other ways to learn that we could be looking at. So for a young person who isn't ready for formal schooling at six, it would be like, well, that's OK. We have these places where actually it's effectively kindergarten for a couple more years whilst you have a bit of time to mature and you could do, you know, you need to do more playing because there's often a push, isn't there? Particularly when we talk about children who aren't in quote school ready, the push is to do more formal education, more schooling, more of the stuff people think are important. And I think that's entirely the wrong way around. I think we should be, for those children, I think we should be thinking about, let's have more high quality play. Let's give them years more. I think a bit the same with the COVID thing. I think, you know, it's like, they're behind let's help them catch up let's get them to do more maths and more english i think it's the playing and the socializing mm. that they've missed out on and i think that's what we should be intensely catching up on we should be saying let's make schools amazing places for them to play for a bit because they missed out on that too and that that's what i personally feel will be damaging in the long term i think as well as you were talking i was thinking about the stress for the parents because i think it does all become about attendance and so yep. if you've got a child that's very unhappy at school and so resisting going and then parents who are very frightened mm -hmm. of being prosecuted and the consequences of yep. their child not being in school that potentially makes home also an unhappy place not just awful. the school environment because of the tension around is this child going to go to school or not yeah it dominates family life yeah absolutely I read recently that 20% of school pupils are neuroatypical, attracting diagnostic labels like ADHD and ASD. Doesn't mm -hmm. this level of diversity suggest that what we're labelling as neuroatypical is actually just part of the normal spectrum of human behaviour? I mean, 20% is significant. 20% is one in five, one in five children. One in five. Yeah, I mean, um, I read on the gov.uk, 1.5 million children in the UK are diagnosed with some kind of special educational needs. It's a lot of young people. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it. I think we're only just starting to recognise the many different ways in which human beings develop and learn and are, and really our system is not designed for that. And the, and the fact that what we're doing is we're kind of saying we're siloing off those young people and saying the system isn't you know they need something different but we're basically by doing that we're locating the problem in them rather than in the system whereas if we were saying okay one in five young people and of course those are going to be the ones that really it's worse that's not working there will be another group of young people for whom it's not working but not working less a little bit less and so they're not kind of reaching the threshold of being sent off for um, assessments or anything if we were to take the feedback from those young people and say what's not working here then how would that change our system how would we transform our system in order that it could be a place that accommodated the whole the whole spectrum of young people rather than the young people who we've kind of selected it sounds like you're saying school might contribute to pathologizing difference rather than um the school being able to make sense of that and and help things go more smoothly if you were planning yeah. a psychologically healthy school environment what would this look like um i mean you gave the example of the school near you um yeah is there anything else you would add to that equation yeah so i think a psychologically healthy school environment would prioritize relationships between young people and adults and also between young you know older young people younger young people 
I think it would prioritise offering many different opportunities. And then I think it would prioritise developing young people's autonomy within that space. So that we provide lots of opportunities to learn, we provide supportive adult relationships, and then we give young people choices about what they do. And I think the irony is, I think that most early years provision do this quite well. And it's that we, we we forget this as children go through school and as they get older and older. And I, I find it so, so just, I don't know what the word is really, but that three and four year olds are allowed to choose to go to the toilet when they want to. But if you ask a teacher of 13 and 14 year olds about that, they'll be like, well, there's no way we could do that. It would be mayhem in the toilets or they'd be manipulating the system, all kinds of things. I was like, so what's happening that 10 years ago, they could do this all right and be responsible for themselves. Now they can't. What's happened in all those hours in between that has mean they've become less responsible, less able to take, but less, less able to behave appropriately in a space you know and, I, and why aren't we doing something that builds on that independence we've got in the early years so that why aren't we expecting by the time they're 13 or 14 that of course they'll be able to move around the school independently without creating havoc because we've nurtured that kind of ability to do so that's been our priority and I would say that those are the things that we should put at the, the, the center of our education um, and then you see for me the curriculum would come second to that because I think that that emotional well-being and that sense of yourself as a worthwhile person, which is nurtured by relationships and autonomy, and then by giving opportunities, is what young people take in take with them into adulthood far more than the curriculum that they're taught. Um, so I think that could look different. You see, I don't think there's one way it should look. I suppose that's it as well. I don't think one size will ever fit all. And I don't think we should be thinking for the one system. But I, I know the systems that I think work best are those where there's a diversity of options and young people can choose them. So if young people want to do maths, they can. And if they actually feel like today I really can't manage with maths, but I'm still happy to be here and I'd like just to kind of sit in a room and listen to a podcast, that's OK, too. Um, that would be my ideal. Seems like we're obsessed with um, force feeding children facts <laughs> rather than thinking about some of the learning processes. And yet in this day and age, there isn't really much need to retain lots and lots of facts because you can go and Google anything you like and, and find the information that you that you need um, in the moment, can't you? You can. And also when you're interested in something, you acquire facts really, really quickly. You know, when you're being made, I, I had this experience on my clinical training. I remember that we were taught lots of stuff by lecture. And I, I, I've always find it quite hard to retain information when it's free of context. So I would learn about, you know, cognitive behavior therapy for depression, all this sort of thing, we're going through it. And then suddenly I would have a client with that issue and oh my goodness, the topic would come alive. And I would be going back through my lecture notes, you know, th looking through it all and I would be finding the books and I'd be going through them. And I would be learning such a lot through working with that client because suddenly it was real. Whereas when it had been taught to me before, I think schools often operate on the model that will teach you all this stuff, you'll have it in your head. And then when you need it, you'll be able to bring it out. I don't think that's how human learning really works. You know, I don't have all that stuff. I've learned a lot of stuff in my time. I don't have it all neatly stored in my brain, ready to pull out when I need it. But what I have learned is where to go and look for stuff when I need it. So, you know, if I have a client now who comes with an issue I haven't seen before, I know what kind of places I'll be looking. 
to find help for myself about how to do it. But I'm still learning now. I don't I don't have all the information I need to work with every client in every scenario. I'm still always it's always an organic process. And I still might be ordering the books and looking through them and going, OK, what do I do this time? Or or I have supervision. Of course, we have clinical supervision where I would ask my supervisor. Um, so that learning process goes on. For, forever really and I think that's what we need to that's much more important for young people to know and understand I can learn stuff and I think if you've got a young person who knows I can learn and if I want to learn this is how I'm going to go about it I think that is much more useful than having a history curriculum in your head because that's always going to be limited isn't it I mean history is an obvious one of you're always only going to have learned a tiny slice of history and a tiny slice of history of probably of your country and not of other countries and it's always going to be very very limited but if you're someone who thinks I'm interested in history I'd like to know more and I know how to do that then it's limitless absolutely and we've spoken already a little bit about people who end up in secure environments I wondered and a lot of a lot of those people have been to pupil referral units or might have been in in custody during their teenage years is Mm -hmm. there an attempt to do something different from an educational point of view in pupil referral units often there is because I think often in pupil referral units They are young people for whom the conventional system has already failed and it's very clear how much it's failed. And I think um, that therefore you will often find in some some alternative provision anyway, not all, that they are starting, they are prioritising relationships and they are prioritising young people's interests and providing opportunities for them simply because they see that what was done before didn't work that isn't always the case and of course some go the other way and they can become really super super controlling instead of being a kind of much more relational basis um but it's funny because I think there is a trend towards the places that do take a more what I would say is a more psychologically based approach to education they are more likely to be the places which have young people who have been failed by the by the conventional system. So often people say to me when I talk about this, they say, you're just it's just privileged kids you're talking about, isn't it? You know, it's all right for you. Middle class. They, you know, it's airy fairy to talk about this for anybody else. The thing is that it's actually it's the kids who've struggled. It's the most deprived kids. It's the kids who've got special needs. It's those kids who desperately need something different and also but when when everything else has failed, somehow everybody becomes more ready to try different alternatives. So there's a really interesting book by a guy called Derry Hannam, who was a teacher, and he set up a democratic learning community in a secondary modern school. This was in the 70s and 80s. Um, and it was his year sevens and year eights. And he says that the reason he was able to do it was because it was a secondary modern school and they had all failed their 11 plus. He said, I think if I'd been at the grammar school, the young the, the parents would have said, there's no way that you can allow them to have this much choice over what they do, because you know what we, we want them on the straight and narrow effectively. But because they had all failed and therefore she, he said, you know, they were in it. Their parents were really felt this was the end for them in some ways they felt in some ways this was the end for them that they'd failed therefore their parents were more ready to consider other other things and to consider psychological well-being and flourishing before considering are they getting through are they ticking their boxes are they doing the tests and therefore there was more openness to doing that and he's written a great book about it which is really 
yeah, heartwarming what they did, like these seven, these year, these 11 and 12 year olds, he helped them set it up as democratic learning community. They start, they ran, they, um, they created a newspaper and they were writing all sorts of articles about everything and they had it all over their walls. And it's just, it's just lovely to hear that you could do that kind of thing in the state system, or you could do that kind of thing in the state system. But I think there is something important about unfortunately about how people's minds open up a bit when it's clear that something isn't working yeah it's a shame you have to have that experience of <laughs> a feeling like fail, a failure in order to yeah. possibly get the opportunity to have something that might be richer and more nourishing it is it's a real shame mm. yeah yeah i know um quite a few people who attribute their success in life and avoiding crime to having a good teacher at school who supported them yeah or because they found education a useful distraction but in prisons yep. and psychiatric hospitals, we see quite a lot of people who appear to have found school traumatic, sometimes due to bullying yeah. by peers, but often because of poor domestic arrangements and the abuse making it hard to concentrate. Does this yeah. have implications for how adult education is delivered, do you think? Oh, that's a really interesting question. And yes, I think it does, because I think it's really easy to recreate a sort of school situation. And if you have young people who've been traumatised by their or adults who as young people were traumatised by their school experiences, what happens when you're traumatised is that if there's a, something that matches in your current environment, it will set off the fight or flight response in a similar way. To, so if you felt in danger when you were young, you can hold that memory in your head. And what happens is this bit of your brain, the amygdala, looks out for matches in order to keep you safe. So this is a bit like I was talking about earlier, where young people, parents tell me that young people won't look at a book because they look at the book and they're like, get that away from me. They They have a fight or flight response effectively to that book. So I think that with adult education, there's a really big, there's a real big chance of setting up a situation just having the teacher in the front of the class for example just putting them in rows could all be a trigger for people and it will immediately put them back into those that school that school fear that school situation I was at a conference actually just on Saturday which was in a secondary school and I hadn't been to a secondary school for a really long time um, and I found it interesting just how everything kind of brought it back just like the, the way the school library smelt was different to other libraries they seem to smell like school libraries I don't know why but in there immediately I was having memories of my primary school library I liked my primary school so that was okay but I think it is really important to be bearing in mind all the time even the tone of a voice or how we give feedback to an adult could trigger a bad memory of them as a child. And this is something that comes up a lot in, in therapy that I do. I work with autistic adults in particular, and many of them have bad, very bad experiences at school. And they will tell me about particular moments, or sometimes they'll say, if I say something to them, they'll say, oh, that's that feels like, you know, when the teacher said try harder or something, even if I'm not saying that, but the tone of voice, it's really, really easy to trigger people. And I think it's, it's about having a, a trauma, a trauma informed approach, I suppose, but particularly school trauma informed, because most people don't consider that school could have been traumatic. I think it's I think, a bit of a, a sort of missing part. Go on. 
I think, well, I think you're right. Sorry to, to cut across you there. I was just thinking about yeah. how in prisons, a lot of the psychological interventions are offered as courses, which of course flags ah, up yeah. school and the, the people that run yeah. them are referred to as tutors. Um, so again, it kind of like brings up educational stuff and working in a unit where yeah. we ran process focused groups and referred mm-hmm. to students group, groups, we never referred to it as courses, but the, um, the, the, the people who were attending often did refer to it as courses, but a lot of them would yeah. speak about it bringing up experiences like what if they get it wrong and being the student yeah. person at school. And, yeah. you know, I think how thinking about how we make sense of school trauma is really important when we're putting people in group group settings and adulthood. Yeah. Yes. And that's so, I mean, that's so evocative the way you say that they feel stupid because that is what people say to me as well in therapy. Obviously, Certainly true about, things sticking with you I still remember Mr MacDonald at my primary school telling me I wasn't good enough to get my rounders badge when I was nine or ten (laughs) (laughs) yeah well you know I I remember (laughs) it's amazing how these things stick with you because I'm I'm actually I really like maths I did a lot of maths I did maths I did maths at a level and I did further maths and all sorts of stuff and I still remember finding fractions really difficult when I was seven and I still remember when I think of fractions I can still feel a little twist in my stomach of go oh I'm not going to be able to do this and I and I think you know I must have just been taught fractions at a stage where my brain just wasn't really ready to engage with fractions Mm. and it has left left me with a fear of fractions when I'm not really afraid you know I I can do high level maths it's not a it's not at all about my competence now but it's still there with me Mm. yes powerful stuff really Mm-hmm. nevertheless yeah, home education does seem to attract a lot of stick so why do you think that is um a lot of stick well I think it's partly because it's um it's often very different and I think that the mindset is very much that school is the right way to learn school is the best way to learn and if you're not doing school you should be doing something very very similar to school and I think it's really difficult to do something that's very different and lots of home educators will be doing something very different and that's partly because of what I talked about earlier which is about how when a young person is at home they have a lot more power and therefore it's much harder for their parent to make them do things all day. So at school, we've got the peer group, we've got the whole setup of the head teacher. The the teacher has a lot of power, but they also have power behind them. It's not just that teacher saying, do this. It's also the head teacher and the school structure and the school governors and the child can't leave, can they? They don't have a place to go. They literally can't leave. Whereas when you're at home, you know, the parent often starts off sitting the child at the kitchen table and saying, we're gonna do this maths work, and if the child says no thanks I'm not and walks out the parent doesn't have that whole set of required of sort of you know authority behind them and the child is at home so the child can walk up to their bedroom and say I'm going to do this instead so therefore parents have to work with their children in a really different way I think it's the rare parent who manages to enforce a full timetable on their child um, which means that they then start to think very differently about learning the local authority doesn't know how to think about that and they don't really know how to assess it. So they don't know what good home learning looks like. They think it looks like doing what you would do at school, but at home, and it's not. But the other thing that's brought up all the time is safeguarding. People will say, well, what about the safeguarding issues of these children not being at school? 
Um, and I mean, there is no evidence that home educated children are at higher risk than schooled children. They've done freedom of information requests. There's no, there are not higher rates of home educated children who are on child protection plans. What we do find is that more home educated children are referred to social services a lot higher. And that's because often they're being referred because of home education. It's being used as a risk factor. So in some, some areas of the country, 25% of home educated children are being referred to social services, but then the rates of child protection plans being put in place are no higher than in the school population. So there's a rate of over-referral because people see it as a risk. I think they see anything different as a risk and they see non-conformity as a risk and they react offensively, basically. So referred by whom? Uh, sometimes referred by schools. So if a, if a parent says, I'm going to take my child to, out to home educate, some schools will refer them. Uh, it's also the case that if you're a home educator, you are very visible because you'll have school aged children at home during the day. And sometimes neighbours will report you um, and they will report you as having a child missing in education um, because they don't they think you're just not send, not sending your child to school. That you're yeah. not, they don't really consider yeah. you might be educating them at home and I've had that happen to me I don't know who I don't know how we we people were alerted to us but I've had I had cards through the door from children missing in education saying we've had from the education welfare officer saying we've heard that there are children in this property who aren't attending school and it's always treated as that and I've also had letters from the council saying your children are missing education it's like no they're not they're being home educated but that's how it's often confused with that the two are confounded hmm. Yeah, I can see that. So, of course, we've just come through this terrible period of the uh, pandemic where a lot of kids were at uh, home. Mm -hmm. do, do you think that that did give parents, a lot more parents, uh, a taste of what opting for home education would be like? No, not really. Not in most cases. I think, I mean, the, what parents tell me is that, that their experiences went different ways. Um, I think what parents thought, I think many parents, unfortunately, now think home education is trying to make their children do a school curriculum at home because that's what happened during lockdown. They were sent, you know, the curriculum was delivered. But suddenly parents were the ones who were responsible for trying to make their children do it. So I think a lot of parents learned and were surprised at how much their children didn't want to do it and how much pressure had to be applied to get them mm. to do it. Because remember, I was talking about children having more power at home. Um, so I think, unfortunately, it didn't challenge it didn't challenge the status quo. It just made parents think, oh, this is really hard work. I, I, I'm happy to have them back at school where the pressure is put on at school rather than me having to do it. But for some parents, um, some parents tell me, and these are maybe particularly the parents where the children refused completely quite early on to do the home learning, to do what school was sending them. And those parents were like, OK, I'm not going to spend the whole of lockdown fighting you. We'll do something else instead. Those parents sometimes say to me that they couldn't believe how much more relaxed their children were that when the pressure of not having to go to school was off, suddenly their children were happier, were thriving, and that they, they started to see their children learning in a different way. So they started to see their children learning through self-directed education, really. So they started to see their children learning the piano because they wanted to, or reading books because they were interested, or asking lots of questions, or looking up YouTube videos about the Titanic, or all sorts of different mm. things. And I think for those parents, some of those decided actually maybe we don't have to go back to school 
because maybe actually this is a better way to learn. But unfortunately, I, you know, as with everything, there were very different responses for different young people and their families. Yeah, I think you, I think you described that really uh, clearly, and 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 I think it illustrates the difference between uh, schooling at school and the kind of homeschooling schooling that you're describing. Um, Mm. Anyway, over to you, Naomi. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, that some some people saw noticed that their children were more relaxed at home. Are there any other advantages yeah. of home education for families that might feel like they've got no other choice? Um, well, yes. I mean, I think the big thing that families tell me when they've been when it's been a real struggle at school, and when parents have been putting enormous amounts of effort trying to get school to work, which lots of parents do. Um, then it can kind of absorb so much of a family's energy. You know, are you going to go to school tomorrow? How are we going to get you to school tomorrow? If you do go to school, what are you going to be like after school? Are we going to be able to manage anything else after school? The whole of a family's life can become dominated by school. So what they tell me, they told me happened during COVID lockdown, actually, but also if they take them out to home educate, is that suddenly they can put their energy into what they think is best for their child rather than what the school is requiring of their child. So instead of, you know, having to do the 20 minutes reading because that's what school says you should be doing, which the child resists in every way they can, you can say, oh, let's listen to an audiobook instead. Or you can say, let's spend the time talking about something we like. Or you can say, let's play a game together. So you can put your, you're still putting the energy in, but you're putting it into something that you can, you think and you feel benefits your child as opposed to trying to fit them into the system. And I think parents describe the lockdown as being quite a relief from that point of view, because you no longer have to get them up and get them out of the house. So you didn't have to do all that emotional energy. And it's a massive emotional toll trying to get a child into school when they don't want to be in school or when they're unhappy at school. Thank you. And finally, Naomi, I imagine you encounter quite a lot of distress in your work. How do you keep mm-hmm. yourself feeling safe and nourished enough to be healthy and carry on learning yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I I sing in a choir, <laughs> which I find really good. Um, I sing in a choir and I go for walks along the beach. I, I'm lucky to live not far from the beach here. Um, and me and my son swim in the sea together when it's warm enough. Um, and I spend time playing games with my children and doing things that they enjoy together with them. It's a lovely answer. Thank you. Been a really informative conversation. Great to yeah. talk to you. Really nice to speak with you this morning, Naomi. What I really like when I meet someone like you is uh, finding that my perspective on something has shifted somewhat, and and that certainly happened this morning. So thanks a lot. Thank you. It's been really nice to talk to you both.